Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Troubadour Talks. Today, we are going to be talking about Oedipus Rex, or as it's known in the English, Oedipus the King. And to discuss this with us, I have Timothy Sandifer on um, on the program with us. So thank you very much for joining us, Timothy. And do you mind if I, do, do you prefer Timothy or Tim? Tim is fine. Tim is fine. Okay. Um, so Tim is the vice president of litigation at the Goldwater Institute. And also particularly, and I read some of your bios, you, you are interested in the, um, in ancient Greek plays, but also how, um, law and, and litigation worked in that time and in Star Trek, I saw. So you're interested in how, lo- how law has worked throughout the ages and even in certain science fiction realms as well. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. The, the um, literature very often is about what makes politics legitimate, what makes the mm. state legitimate or morally justified. And in all of literature to this day, I think there are very few that can compare with the Orestia trilogy by Aeschylus, which is a, a series of plays that climaxes in the creation of law. Really, the the climactic moment of the third play, the Eumenides, is where Athena creates the legal system in Athens as a resolution of the system of um, vengeance, the cycle of vengeance that is begun by the initial murder in the first play. And I've always thought that was really a fascinating way for lawyers to consider what is it that makes the legal system legitimate? Well, the answer to that is the Constitution. Well, what what makes the Constitution legitimate? And the answer to that involves questions of morality, of uh, lots of complicated philosophical details that I think are really fascinating. Yeah, and I think um, so. Right before we before we jump into Oedipus um, and how how that all works together, just so everybody knows, you can go visit and read the articles. Uh, of Tim Sandifer. If you go to sandifer.typepad.com, that's S-A-N-D-E-F-U-R dot typepad.com. And he has written articles on lots of different topics, including law, but also liberty. Frederick Douglass, you have a book on Frederick. So lots of things, but go there and you could search through a lot of the articles. And I think there's a wide ranging of things that we can um, that he's an expert on and very knowledgeable about. And law, of course, is probably the primary one, I would imagine. And, you know, so um, just going back to what you were just saying, I think uh, I, I wanted to add that I, I think I, I agree with you about Aeschylus and the Oresteia. It's actually how it was introduced to me when I studied ancient Greek is read the Oresteia. It's kind of this, um, you know, the progression of, like you're saying, going from this vengeance world, which you see in later literature as well. You see this, that type of thing, um, in, in Shakespearean, you know, theater. And there's a lot of that tension that you get in literature where there's a kind of origin, but I don't think it's as poignant for me anyway, as it is in the Greek, because this is, they were really interested in theater as helping the, um, the individual viewer, audience member, be a better person and a better citizen. And so they were grappling with these really complex, difficult issues. Sometimes today in modern times, we would definitely not agree with them. But the the idea that they took it so seriously, I think is really important. And that it was an art that would lead 
to this kind of understanding, this realization, what Aristotle called a catharsis. And I think that, you know, maybe can lead us into Oedipus, which is just so people are a little clear in how we can position this. Aeschylus is the first of the three major tragedians. Then it's Sophocles, then Euripides. And Aristophanes, the comedian, is thrown in there somewhere. And um, Aeschylus wrote the the Oresteia, which is three plays. Uh, I think it's what the Libation Bearers, or no, it's the Agamemnon, the Libation Bearers, and the Eumenides, right? And then um, Sophocles wrote the Theban plays, which is the where the Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King is situated. It's Oedipus the King, uh, Antigone, and Oedipus at Colonus. And those are kind of the the trilogy, although it's we can talk about what a trilogy is in, a, in another sense. You know, we like trilogies today, um, but they the Greeks had a different view of, I think, the importance of the, the trio. But anyway, um, so with Oedipus, we have this story of that's really well known of, you know, in Greek. And I think it's well known today. So when we approach Oedipus, we approach it with a keen knowledge, even today, of at least the major things that happen. Right. Like we all probably today and the Greeks definitely had a very, you know, the audience members in fifth century Athens were really knowledgeable about, um, you know, the the Oedipus leaving um, Corinth because he was uh, fleeing from a oracle that predicted he was going to kill his father and sleep with his mother. He approaches the Sphinx, which is a monstrous figure that people in Thebes were sacrificing and people on this crossroads, I guess, were sacrificing in order to, uh, if they couldn't answer this riddle, which nobody could. And um, the riddle was, what's the riddle? Um, what st- uh, oh, what walks on yeah. two legs in the morning? No, what walks on four legs in the morning, four. two legs in the afternoon and three legs in the evening? Yeah. Um, and he answers that. He solves the riddle, which we'll, we'll, you know, I'll wait on that in a second. Say what that is. He gets to, uh, and he, he gets to a crossroads. He kills a man who's in the way of the crossroads. He gets to Thebes. He There's no king there, so he becomes the leader of the Theban people. He marries the wife, uh, or he marries the, the queen, becomes the king. And so, and that, and then a set, and then that is actually what happens before Oedipus the king, um, the play opens. So, why don't we, why don't you get started and, and tell us a little bit about what you think the play in specific is about? Well, yeah, so, and you're right that people would have come to the theater with this knowledge of the background. I like to to analogize it to the Marvel movies Mm. nowadays, where, you know, people come to the theater knowing who Batman is, knowing the, the backstory of Batman. That does not, however, prevent the writers of the movie from kind of fiddling with it. You know, they come up with reboots or they come up with new twists on how to tell the origin story. And so then you get like competing versions of Batman's backstory or Spider-Man or whatever. And the Greek tragedians tended to do that. They did kind of fiddle with these mythologies a little bit so that nowadays you know, you, you'll open up a Greek mythology textbook and it'll often say, well, according to some sources, this happened. According to some other sources, that happened. Well, the reason why is because the Greeks sometimes kind of retold these stories to make broader points in as they explored moral issues. So the what happens with Oedipus is it begins kind of uh, in media race, as they say, in the middle of things. Uh, it, it starts with the, the Thebes has been 
subjected to a, uh, a plague. People are dying mysteriously, and it's been going on for some time. And the the citizens are gathering in front of the the palace, uh, crying out for uh, Oedipus to do something because he's you know he's a very he's a great leader. He's a wise man. They know that he can he can do something if if uh, he puts his mind to it. He comes out of the palace and says, don't worry, I'm I'm on top of it. I've sent to the Oracle at Delphi to tell us what's going on here and we'll get this problem solved and all this. Stuff. Well, it, the, when it when the Oracle returns, it the the Oracle, um, it turns out that that according to Apollo, the reason for the plague is because Thebes is harboring a terrible crime and uh it, and Oedipus sees it as his task to solve this crime in order to appease the gods and put an end to the plague. Meanwhile, a, uh, a, the famous blind soothsayer Tiresias arrives to tell Oedipus that there's something going on here and it involves you, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because you've, you know, Oedipus is kind of this brash, somewhat disrespectful fellow. And he says, uh, he says, oh, well, you know, I don't need to listen to, to superstitious nonsense from you. And Tiresias says, you'll find out soon enough that you are the cause of this problem. Oedipus, and this is kind of an interesting thing that Sophocles does here. Oedipus responds to this by saying that Tiresias has been paid for by Creon, who's kind of his political rival. He's the brother of Jocasta, who is Oedipus's wife, uh, and later we discover his mother. And Oedipus accuses Creon of having paid off Tiresias as sort of a trick to gain power. And Creon says, well, what are you talking about? Why in the world would I do this? You, you have no reason to suspect me. The reason I find that interesting is because Sophocles does a very similar thing in the Antigone. Mm -hmm. In that play, he also has at the, by that time, the king is Creon. Creon starts to become suspicious in the same way and accuse his rivals of being bought and paid for. And it seems to be a, a theme in Sophocles' writing about kings that they tend to be really suspicious and, and always expect that other people are conspiring against them even when there's no real reason to do so. It's kind of revealing about Sophocles' view of political power. Anyway, yeah. as Oedipus, as the play continues, uh, the clues start to pile up. Oedipus starts to investigate. He he brings in a messenger with a messenger rather arrives and says, "Hey, guess what? There's I've just got news. The king of the, of um uh, Corinth. I'm sorry, the king of uh, Corinth uh, of Corinth. Corinth yeah. yeah, sorry, I, I was gonna say I was gonna say colonists. Anyway, yeah. the king of Corinth is dead." And this is actually good news to Oedipus, uh, you know, because you were supposed to kill that king and, and it turns out you didn't. He died of natural causes, so everything's OK. Well, then, of course, it turns out that the king of Corinth is not actually his father. After all, he was adopted. He was. Um, and as the clues fall into place, Oedipus discovers that actually it's it really was true that he was actually born in Corinth, that he arrived, that the man that he killed at the crossroads on the way to Thebes was actually his father, King Laius, that Jocasta actually is his mother. And all these things fall into place when the truth is revealed, Oedipus um, uh, or, or Jocasta rather hangs herself inside the palace. Oedipus, upon discovering her body, plucks out his eyes with the pins that she uses to hold her dress on and then uh, begs the new king, uh, uh, Creon, to banish him uh, and and put an end to the misery of of uh, Thebes. So it's the, the reason why the great scholars like 
Aristotle regarded it as such a well-written play was primarily because the way the clues are revealed in the play very sequentially it's you the audience can uh, can really appreciate the truth dawning upon Oedipus as he discovers very slowly that all the avenues are closed off and he can't avoid the truth and it, it's right there in front of him and, and how horrible it is and that it really worked quite effectively when it's when it's done well yeah and, and uh in rereading it, I haven't read it in years, and I reread it this um, last weekend, and I was struck again. And I remember this in the past, but I think even more the just the universality of the play and how it applies much more today than I w- would have even anticipated. You know, if you just replace the blind seer with um, people who pr- make broad projections today about the future, right? Whether it's climate models or economic models or all these types of things like you can, there's just so much you can see about these seers and whether we listen to them, how we listen to them, why we ignore them, why we agree with them and take them at their word. And these are things that I think the Athenians were grappling with in terms of, you know, uh, this society at this time, you know, when they're writing this in the fifth century, which is, you know, Athens at its, at its classical goal, almost its golden age that it's, you know, they're really interested in how to establish a good society, what kind of leaders that they want to have, and maybe the pitfalls of that. And that's, and, and we can go into the moral issues, that's just kind of the political issues. But I found it very interesting, because, like you said, the first thing that the king says about this Tiresias character, the blind seer, who's who says that knowledge rests within me, right? I mean, how many climate modelists and and economists say essentially this is the truth about what's going to happen in the future or you know and and there's a or or political pundits say that the truth rests within me in a sense and that they're projecting or predicting some horrible outcome or some wonderful outcome or whatever it is in the future and well i think i think sophocles has oedipus be so skeptical toward tiresias because of of that that uh, sense of paranoia and suspicion it um you know incidentally what you say about uh, uh trusting authorities and so forth this comes up later in the play when jocasta has several lines where she says oh who listens to soothsayers and yeah. uh, and oracles and that sort of thing anyway and sophocles has her proven horribly wrong right it turns out that the the oracle is right and that tiresias has been right all along and i think the way Sophocles approaches it is, I think, a more religiously conservative. Now, I don't think Sophocles is as much of a conservative in a in a cultural sense as some scholars do. There, there's this long-standing tradition that Sophocles is this sort of mild, religiously conservative guy who sees his his plays as proving to the world why the gods are are just or something. And mm-hmm. I don't think that can be. I don't think they can always be reconciled, certainly not with with the Antigone. But uh, I, so I don't think that's always true. But I do think in, in Oedipus, there's a certain tendency by the characters to rebel against the idea that the that the world is ordained by the gods. And I now I've, I quickly I want to hasten to say I don't think this is a tragic flaw. The concept of tragic flaw has been used to interpret tragedies for a very long time, 
And I, I remember when I first read this play in high school, my class was basically assigned to figure out what Oedipus's tragic flaw is. And the tragic flaw is the idea that this character ha is, you know, maybe great, but he has this one little failing and it's going to lead to his his ultimate doom. And I, I think that's anachronistic. I don't think that the Greek tragedians had the idea of tragic flaw or used it that often. The most the most obvious ca um, cat uh, candidate for a tragic flaw in this play would be hubris, right? Mm -hmm. Hubris is the ancient Greek concept of, um, of trying to rise above your station, be or or to be like a god when you're really a mortal or that sort of thing. And there is hubris in this play, no question about that. But I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, Oedipus is punished for his hubris. I don't think that's the case. Oedipus is punished for mythological reasons. He's punished because Apollo decreed that he would be punished as a, um, as, as in response to something his father did. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing Oedipus can do to escape that. And I remember in, in my high school class, when we first read this play, being very outraged by that. The students were all very bothered by the idea that Oedipus does his very best to avoid committing the sins which he ends up committing. And it seems terribly unjust, terribly unfair to punish Oedipus in this way. To which the answer, I think the correct answer is, this is not a play about justice. It just isn't. This is a play about freedom. Mm -hmm. It's a. This is a play about how free are we really in a metaphysical sense? Free will, freedom of choice. And I think that this ties in with the, the, the riddle of the Sphinx, actually. And to put this in sort of broad terms, the way I would describe it is I think that people, and I think this is particularly true of ambitious and intelligent people, sometimes it's easy to forget that you are a mortal being, a physical body that will in the end decay and pass away and never be seen again. We live so much in the world of ideas and dreams and values and abstractions that I think it's easy to try and and it's easy to think that that is what you really are. There's a line in a actually in a James Taylor song where he says uh, that he says, I tried to give up my body and live in my mind. Mm. And Oedipus, I think, does that. I think it what he tends to do is he sort of rises to uh, a uh, a level where he he's he's living in a world of ideas as opposed to an idea a world of of mortality and it, what ends up happening is that he gets brought down by the gods in the end and that's why the incest part is part of the play is because it's part of this physicality the the fact that you can't avoid being a, a biological creature for everything. Else. So there is hubris in it, but I don't think that it's as simple as Oedipus is punished for his hubris. It's a question about all of humanity and our tendency to sometimes, you know, uh, uh, imagine that we are just spirits rather than that we are a fully integrated being, if that makes any sense. It's, it's a, kind of a rough way of putting it, but you can, I think you can see what I'm getting at. Yeah. So I, um, there's a couple points there. One, the tragic flaw thing I agree with. I think a lot of this comes from Aristotle and his whole concept of missing the mark and that that he had a lot of prescriptive things to say, which from then on, whenever people read Aristotle, especially since he's such a powerful thinker, they would sometimes just take it all literally and just say, that's the end, right? So this tragic flaw thing, I do think from a literary, especially like high school and junior high type readers, 
the problem with it is that it can be an interesting way to enter the text, but it should not be the ending of your interpretation and analysis. It should just be like something to, okay, so maybe there is some hubris, but let's go further into it. And I think there's a flaw in that literary analysis um, that sometimes gets in the way. And I wanted to touch on something you um, talking about these characters and, and talking about, I, I agree with you with the theme has to, has to do, if not is about fate and free will, particularly what free will and freedom is allowed within this fatalistic world that we live in. And according to the Greeks, um, because I do think there is a lot of freedom and, and here's how in reading it again, my, my analysis has um, shifted deeper into Oedipus's character that I think is really much more, um, you know, the way it's been talked about in literary analysis is he's the ideal Athenian leader in many ways of that time. And what they mean, what's meant by that, but I think there's a lot of virtue in him just generally, not just with what Athens thought he is very, he's a thinker and an actor. So there's moments when he says, you know, I've thought about this. I've done these types of thinking and I've sent, you know, when he's talking to the the chorus at the beginning, he says, yes, you, you have this problem and I've already been thinking about it. I've already, I've already taken the action that you need, right? They call on him to cure them. He's, said to be, you know, there's a, there's a doctor element and he's already done the action, right? That's what a good leader should do. He should think about it and he should act, right? He's, he's described as a good oarsman, a steersman of the state. And there's this, um, and, and he's a good investigator. He asks questions. He's like, well, what about this? And there's certain ways that, so these are things that they, you know, Athens at this time, which is the birth of reason and and thought essentially, in a, in a, in a, I guess, more specific philosophical way and in a methodology, methodological way. And he kind of represents that. And what I've seen in the story is that driving force is what leads to his inevitable downfall. So it's the oh, yes. virtues, totally the virtues yeah. that he takes in his actions that he pushes because there's even a moment when Joe Cass is like, essentially, dude, stop thinking about this. Stop investigating. Right. Like, just stop. You know, she starts getting worried and she's like, stop. Like, just don't, you don't want to go down this avenue. You know, she's getting this sinking feeling and she's like, something's wrong in the state of Denmark. Something's rotten in the state of Denmark. I don't want to know about it. You shouldn't want to know about it. Ignorance is bliss. Let's just live by right. chance. Whatever happens, happens. But he cannot drop it. He has to know the truth. Yeah. And, um, and so he pushes it forward. And that's, again, what leads to this horrific outcome, which you've already described, where Jocasta kills herself. He blinds himself. Um, and then he asks to be. And in that, I would say that there's a really wonderful line in the Fagel's um, translation that I have where he says, Apollo um, decreed my fate, but it was I who poked out my eyes. It was I, he, he says it was my hand. And he's the stressing of the action of like, yes, there are these horrible fates, these these strong elements outside of our control. But within that, there is something that we have control over. I have control over my own punishment. And and Oedipus refuses to cease the investigation and he refuses to kill himself. You know, Jocasta 
Yeah. You know, you could plausibly argue that Jocasta takes the easy way out and Oedipus doesn't. He's going to remain alive. There's the, you know, what they what you might say, the objective horror of what has happened. But uh, he faces that. And this is, is in, incidentally, um, your your interpretation is shared by Friedrich Nietzsche, who yeah. in The Birth of Tragedy, yeah. when he's talking about Oedipus, he makes the same point that what what makes Oedipus really work is that he refuses to ignore the truth. And when the ho true horror of, of reality is f thrust upon him, he 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 makes a good end of it. And I think this is what we we, we could call the tragic sense of life is that this this notion that there are times and some dramatists would say this is all the time when there is no escape there is no way to succeed and it's a, sort of a question of how you make the best end under the circumstances um uh, an example that comes immediately to mind would be uh the the uh, pennsylvania plane on September 11th, right? Mm. There's no way that you're going to regain control of the airplane. Even if you do gain, regain control of the airplane, nobody on board knows how to land it. And so everybody on this plane is going to die. There's nothing you can do about that. So under those circumstances, what do you do to make the best end of it? Do you choose something cowardly or do you choose something noble and, and, and good? And of course, we all know that in that specific case, they chose something noble and good. And I think what uh, what makes the tragedy work is that we is the very fact that Oedipus is a virtuous character, that f he is a um, uh, driven and and thoughtful and conscientious about his duties as king. And I think Edith Hamilton makes this point, actually, in the uh, in her classic book, uh, the, the Greek Way, mm -hmm. that we the, the, what makes the tragedy successful is that Oedipus is an admirable person. So the the hasty idea that well he's punished for his his wrongdoing. No, it's it's it, the play <coughs> wouldn't work if it were that way. Yeah, I I think and um, this goes back to the power that it holds to the Greek audience and to ourselves, knowing already what's going to happen to Oedipus. And the question is as you pointed out earlier, what will Sophocles do with this material? And I think what he makes it about is the revelations that happen. And there's a series of these revelations. And, you know, as we've pointed out, the they're pushed forward, all the actions pushed forward by his virtues of action, of you know doing the right thing and wanting to know and um, those types of things. So I think there's, there's an element where that is the... Um, important thing for us in reading it today, understanding that that artifice. And part of what I, I guess I try to do with um, my magazine, Troubadour Magazine, is, is help people get more out of this for their own sake for today. And um, so I, I think we can get into what relevance it has to our own lives. And we've touched on this, but maybe getting into it specifically. So, you know, I, I try to mention some things about some political angles that are relevant. And you've talked about this with, you know, uh, also the, the weariness of kings. And we could see this with tyrants that are relevant today. The more power somebody has, the more they're weary of people around them just aiming and angling for them and, and trying to, you know, get their, get their power essentially. And, you know, so the, the other way that I've looked at it is, you know, what type of, um, control do we actually believe we have? So when we look at Oedipus, we could say, this is what the Greeks believed. 
They believed in this fatalism world. And within that realm, you could have it, you know, and, and so I guess we can ask ourselves, do we believe in that? Do we believe that we have free will and that we actually can challenge ourselves? And I don't know if you like there's some relevance that you have in terms of our own. Well, I think this is what led me to my thoughts about giving up your your body and living in your mind, because what, mm. what speaks to me about the play anyway and and more so, I, <laughs> I I feel funny saying this, but more so as I get older. I'm I'm only in my early 40s, but I still I, it has occurred to me now, now that I'm twice as old as I was when I first read the play, that this quality of mortality, you know, there is one sense in which life is a no win game because eventually we all are going to die and there's nothing you can do to escape that. And so to some extent, life is about making a beautiful uh, or meaningful uh, experience while you're here and while you have the opportunity to make choices, to make good choices. And of course, this was very much on the Greeks' minds. There's a famous legend about um, uh, the meeting between Solon and Croesus. Solon mm-hmm. was supposed to be the, the wisest man in Athens, and he uh, spent some time traveling the world. And according to Herodotus, he had a, a meeting with Croesus, who was the richest man in the world. And Croesus brought in all of his gold and jewelry and showed them all to Solon and said, who do you think is the happiest man in the world? Of course, anticipating that Solon would say, why you, Croesus, you're the happiest (laughs) man because you're so rich. But instead, what Solon said was he told a story about an old lady he knew who had lived really well, had two sons who grew up to be good men who fought well in in a war. And when she died, they did funeral honors for her the way that they were supposed to. And he said she was the the happiest person because, you know, she had lived a a good life that that was uh, satisfying, fulfilling and met all of the requirements of the gods. And there you go. Well, I think that that comes to mind with Oedipus because Oedipus is in one sense, you could find something of that in every life that you, you were all sentenced to to ultimate destruction. So do we face reality and try to do what's right, even when it seems sometimes like it's pointless? Or do we take the route that Jocasta counsels, where she says, close your eyes and pretend that it's that it's different and and fantasize and live in a in a in bliss? Or, you know, or do you take the cowardly route and uh, like Jocasta does? Or what, you know, and I so I think that what the reason why this play speaks to me in modern times, uh, even though I do not believe that our fates are decreed by the gods, uh, is that it, it speaks to the, this idea of even when success is not possible, still beauty and a meaningful life are possible. I think that's a really uh, important message that the Greeks really hand to us. Yeah, so there's this element where um how did you put it so the 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 free will aspect oh, just escaped my mind what you're saying a second ago um <clears throat> ah. you see my brilliance just uh, yeah no it was uh, it, it no it was it was good it was it was something about the way that we approach fatalism in the 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 realms that we have room and control over that i was and i had a thought that had just slipped my mind so i'll have to skip into um the the oh oh, okay sorry i I do remember now and this i think goes into um what you were talking about is so important for us in remembering um what meaning is 
and how what what we do have room to make meaning out of our lives. And so the the story of Oedipus, as I, I kind of told it ahead, at the very beginning of our podcast here, is well known to everybody. The play takes place essentially at the you know the end of his life, right? Or the end of his or sorry, not the end of his life, the end of his um this moment of him revealing all this information. All the action of his life is a memory. And there are moments in the play when he thinks back to his life, when he goes to the crossroads, and he re-evaluates that scene. And in a sense, he he now reevaluates it with meaning in mind. Now that he or with knowledge. And that in a sense is what meaning is. And it's what, you know, th- there's this idea of like self uh, creating yourself, but also it, coming from self-discovery by introspecting and going back into the past. And I think the Greeks had a, a really good insight into that psychological process, that self-creation and meaning comes from looking at your past with new new insights. You know, you were talking Absolutely. about... Absolutely. Yeah. So you're talking about... Four, yeah. Oh, totally. Uh, oh, so you were talking about, you know, you're 40 now and you, you can look back at your life and not only reinterpret at Oedipus, but you probably are reinterpreting your life as it was led and how it led you to here, which gives you a sense of yourself. And that's where meaning comes from, in my view. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about meaning from God or meaning from these other areas. I think the Greeks at least had an inkling that, yes, there's fatal, you know, their view is there's fate. There's there's a lot of it where you don't have any control in their view. But a lot, you know, there's there's something about looking into your past and reevaluating it and, and and reliving it. I mean, I can the scene where Oedipus describes the approach at the crossroads. If you read the language, and now I'm not, I don't speak, I don't read Greek, so I have to rely on the translations. But from what I understand, Fagels did a phenomenal job with this in that it starts to become first person action as he's telling the story. So he's telling the story of something that happened 20 years or, you know, 15 years earlier, whenever the action happens, but it starts to become, and I hit him over, I crudgled him. And I think that, you know, memory becomes real. It becomes now. And this is, you know, we, I, I, I run something called the literary canon club at Troubadour magazine, where a bunch of people who go through and read the literary canon together, essentially. And one of the things that I'm always confronted with is like, well, what's the purpose of reading literature? Like, what does it really give us? And I think this is a perfect example of it gives you the insight of our lives are in a sense, or they can be easily chaotic. We can easily have a disordered, unmeaningful life. That is probably the, if you just live life without contemplation, that's essentially what you're living to have meaning, to have order is an active process that you yourself have control over. And I, for me, that when reading Oedipus Rex again, I really saw that truth in Sophocles, that philosophical. That's marvelous. You know, I had but, not, it, that had not occurred to me. And you're, you're absolutely right that, that this is particularly uh, a Greek insight. So in, in her book, The Morality of Happiness, the philosopher Julia Annis starts out by saying when the Greeks thought of philosophy, 
they 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 thought of it in just this way. She says, uh, you know, you've lived, say, 30 or 40 years and now you you pause to kind of take stock of your life as as sort of an, a, a trajectory through the universe and make sense of it. What have you done well? What have you not done well? What can you improve on in the remaining years of your life and so forth? And it, it's a marvelous point that Annis makes that, you know, the Greeks really thought of philosophy very differently than than a lot of people do nowadays. Uh, the, the Greek philosophy is is along the lines of what would nowadays be categorized as self-help books uh, a mm -hmm. lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you find this tradition of, you know, uh, looking back on your life from an experience of 30 years or so. You even find it in um, in Dante, right? The, the opening passage of the Inferno is Dante is walking through a wood and he specifies at the age of 33 and he pauses and and uh, at a crossroads. And I think that that is sort of a, a hint at this idea. Incidentally, so you were you were talking about the passage where Oedipus does this and he reflects back on the killing of of Laius. Now we're we've got the the Fagels translation here. Yeah. Fagels by the way is not you know the the your your real Greek nerds are not real fond of of Robert Fagels because mm. he's not very literal. I prefer Fagels of all the translators because I think it's good to not be too literal because Greek and English are just too different. To, yeah. you, you can't really convey it by literally translating it. So I prefer Fagels. But if you get if you get the Fagels version, this well, is a just if, on if we could touch on that real quick and, and then you could read your thing. Um, just one I just one thing about that with the language that I think is powerful is just the name Oedipus, which this play in particular has a lot of puns in it in the Greek mm -hmm. that don't translate at all. Like Oedipus, depending on how it's spelled in the acts or the, how it's pronounced or whatever, you know, can, means lame footed, but it also means to know in Greek. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's moments when he says, um, you know, I, I, you know, you know this. And it's like, I, and it would be like at, Oedipus and Oedipus and and he but he the the pun is that he doesn't know that he's sleeping with his wife right and it's the Tiresias telling him you know that you're sleep you know you are sleeping with like don't you know and in the Greek it would be Oedipus and so you can't translate that and we we lose so much of that but anyway totally I just wanted in to in addition to which you know like Lattimore for instance he translates he'll even translate names differently like spelling them with a K instead of a C and stuff. And and he, in his view, that gives it an authenticity. To me, it separates us from the play. We're so accustomed yeah, to seeing a name mean. like Achilles or something spelled in a particular way that reading it that way it, it it alienates it from us, and so we don't we see it more as an as an object rather than experiencing the play the way it was intended. So I I prefer Fagel's myself. Yeah, but here's the passage Let's, go ahead. that yeah, you're yeah. talking about. It's on pages two hundred five and two hundred six. And you, and he switches when he's describing the encounter on the road with Laius. He switches from past tense to present tense. I on page two hundred six. I began to see a herald and then a brace of colts drawing a wagon and mounted on the bench, a man just as you've described him coming face to face. And the one in the lead and the old man himself were about to thrust me off the road, brute force. And the one shouldering me aside, the driver. I strike him in anger. See, which is the present tense. Yeah. And the old man watching me coming up along his wheels, he brings down his prod, two prongs straight at my head. I paid him back with earnest, short work by God. With one blow of the staff in his right hand, I knock him out of his high seat and so forth. Yeah, and he ends, by the way, with a pun. I killed, I killed them, them all. all, every mother's son, so, right? Yeah. That pun that you were just talking yeah. about. 
Now, a lot of people, and I, I remember this again from high school, a lot of people, this is one of the scenes that they latch onto as being the tragic flaw. Well, Oedipus is killed for having murdered Laius. And I think it's pretty clearly not what um, was intended by Sophocles here. Sophocles, although you know today we would consider this road rage incident to be excessive, uh, I think in, in Sophocles' audience would have seen this as adequate provocation and they would not have thought that Oedipus is in somehow is in some sense blameworthy of murder here. And it certainly is that idea is never hinted at in any of the mythology or any of the other plays or by Aristotle. So I don't think that's a, a, an accurate reading. It's something, though, that I know a lot of first timers run into. Yeah. And Incidentally, I, talking oh. about first timers, I'm reminded of of an incident. This was uh, about 10 years ago or so. I actually got to see not the not the Oedipus plays, but the Orestia mm. performed live on stage in Greek. Mm. And it was it was by purely by accident. What happened was uh, I found out that the that a, a company was putting on the all three plays at a theater in San Jose, California, which was not too far from where I was living at the time. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of neat. I should go do this. So I bought some t I bought a ticket. I went down to see it. And I, before the play started, there was this little reception where people are passing around hors d'oeuvres and things. And I'm standing there and they were fantastic hors d'oeuvres. I love Greek food. And these hors d'oeuvres are all these the Greek stuff. And it's just fantastic. And everybody's standing around speaking Greek. And only at that point did it occur to me that maybe the play wouldn't be in English. <laughs> uh -uh. So we all go into the theater and sure enough, the entire thing was in Greek. Now, fortunately, they had uh, one of those what those uh, silent radios or whatever they call it up up above the stage, translating it into English as it went. And of course, I'd read the plays, so I knew what happens. Yeah, and it was fantastic. It was mm -hmm. the most incredible thing to see this play performed. It was put on by a company, but led by a name, na man named Leonidas Leozides. It's L O I. Mm. Z-E-D-E-S, and he was still performing. I, nowadays, all the theaters are shut down for now, but but he was still perform, perform, putting on these performances of ancient Greek literature in Greek in New York and across the country until very recently. So you're, if your audience is really into this, I strongly recommend looking up Leonidas Leonidas and seeing if you can find one of these performances on stage because it's really fascinating to see something like this enacted as authentically as you can really get it in the 21st century. Yeah, I'll try to. Um, well, I will put a link in the uh, show notes for that. I have not heard of that. I've I I um, do remember many years ago seeing one Greek play that didn't. I don't even remember it. I don't. It didn't make much sense to me. It was actually at the um, the Getty Villa in. Oh uh, yes, they per put yeah. on the performances in their in their little theater there. Little yeah, theater. I've, I've always wanted to see one and never managed to. Yeah, I mean, it could have just been like the time of my life or something. I just don't remember much. I think it was a Euripides play. I just don't remember much of it. It didn't make any sense to me. And I had read Greek and it might've just been the performance or it might've been me. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Um, cause sometimes, so that's the only Greek play I've ever seen, but the, there are times when it becomes challenging because modern playwrights or theater managers and directors want to modernize it. Oh, yeah. And my, you know, my view of a lot of these classics is that they're modern enough in a certain sense. I mean, they're, you know, this play in particular is an example, but not all of them. I guess it would, you know, someone could argue not all of them, but this play in particular, I think could easily be 
um, you know, just performed as it is. And I think it would be wonderful to see it in the Greek, especially if you had some kind of translation. I mean, a lot of, you know, now they could even do it like with a phone. I mean, they could do apps or something like that. We have, we do have new technology that could make it really cool where you can kind of see, you know, the text coming on or something like that. That's, that's going along with the words that they're saying. And, and there are some movie versions of Oedipus. Oh, I think yeah, there yeah. are three in English that I know of. There's one that's pretty easy to find on Netflix, I think, in black and white. And it's done with masks, as the original play would have been done. Oh, wow. Okay. But there's a, a, a more recent one done in the 80s, starring John Gielgud as Tiresias and a lot of other very famous actors in, from Great Britain. It was done by BBC in, I think it was 86 or 87. And you can find it on YouTube, and and it's not great uh, video quality, but you can watch the whole thing. And um, it's modernized, like you say. It's done in modern dress, and, and the language has been made so that people can more easily follow what's going along. But for a beginner, it's a very good way of getting into to, – to start out with follow what the how the play is supposed to operate in the, in the, the full horror of, mm. of Oedipus's experience. Yeah, and so um, with the – you know, going back to what we can glean from it today, when I, again, rereading it, I was struck by the emphasis on the plague and the destruction of the city. As I'm, you know, as we're recording this, we're still in a pandemic. And, you know, the question of solving that problem and how we solve that problem and what methods we use as a society to solve the problem. Obviously, the Greeks had a different view but I, I think one of the things that you know when I, going back to the character of Oedipus as the even even though Oedipus takes place in Thebes thousands of years before the uh, Athenians he represented what the Athenians thought were great virtues and or maybe not that like yeah he was I don't know his exact time historically but long before Athens uh, classical Athens and you know so when I, when I was looking at this and I was thinking like um you know, how we today are solving this problem of dealing with this plague that we have today versus then. And again, this is just me trying to figure out if there's any corollaries. And, you know, so one of the things is the, like, like I said earlier, the virtues of, um, of Oedipus are also described in, in the language in a variety of ways. So, you know, I talked about plant thoughtfulness and action and, um, you know, how he's an investigator, but some of the other things that is kind of built into the language are the proud achievements of classical Athens, things like mathematics, right? The, you know, the, the investigate, the reasoning of logical approach to something like that is not something you get prior to this very often in the ancient world where people are really, uh, and there's, you know, they're, they're proud of their agriculture. So Oedipus is described as, in, you know, in certain cases like plowing in, in the case of uh, Jocasta, of course, but you know, so, but he's used this language about him constantly, and there seems to be built into the play a criticism of that in opposition to the oracle, which has the truth. So it's can you know this is the birth of humanism? Can the human world solve these problems, and or or do we or must we rely? on the oracle and there's a line in there by the chorus which represents the theban people it represents conservatism where they say the oracle has to be proved right even if it's wrong essentially 
Like we have to, because we have to rely on that for the truth. And, you know, I sometimes think about like how we today, you know, rely on things for knowledge and, you know, we, we don't want to question the challenging things. We don't want to question our pinnacles of truth, whether you're on the right, if you're on the right, it could be these news stations. If you're on the left, it's those news stations, whatever it is, but, or it's, you know, academia, whatever your, your column of truth comes from, you know, I just find it very universal that, that question of can, you know, do we have to rely on these kind of supernatural? I mean, they put it in very supernatural terms, but I, I think it can be applied to other types of oracles. And like I mentioned, the, the economists. And so I don't know if you see that or I if can, that's too much of a stretch. I with that. And <laughs> I, I think I can see how that connects with the way I was interpreting the play, too. Because if, if I'm right that this play is ultimately about, I, I guess you could say, being grounded, right, as as recognizing your mortality and and keeping in mind that you are a union of mind and body and not ju- not these separate entities i i can see how if that's correct how sophocles would have connected that to this idea about can we as uh, as humans cut ourselves free of the oracles and and the gods for which they speak would we be safe in a world in which we trusted solely in human judgment mm-hmm. and uh, and I said earlier that I, I'm somewhat skeptical of the idea that Sophocles is a religious conservative. But on this point, I think he certainly would be a religious conservative yeah. and that he would say his answer, I think, in this play is no, that we we can't cut ourselves off entirely because, you know, uh, then if, if we cut ourselves loose of the inherited taboos and traditions and the 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 religion of our fathers, you might say that we are at sea and we will have nothing to guide us and we'll come to ruin. I think I, I suspect that that is what his answer to that would be. And I can see literarily how that would also connect to the incest theme of the play, because I think mm. what Sophocles would have said is that the the longstanding taboo against incest is handed to us by the gods because, of course, the gods engage in incest all the time. It's it's where they come from, basically. But that's not okay for humans because oh, we are mere mortals. And wow. I think he would have said there's sort of this this hierarchy, and that incest is a is a is a is a literary device in the play to kind of in uh, indicate transgressing those boundaries and cutting ourselves free of what Sophocles would have said are the religiously grounded morals of the city. And you and I coming to the play as more humanists, as people who, who reject that perspective in, on philosophy, we have a different view of it. We see that as, um, as I guess, parochial in a way that Sophocles would not have. But it, you're, And that gives us, I guess, a different insight into the play. We look at the play and we see it from a, a very different angle because of that. And so we see the, the religious grounding and the, and the taboos and the superstitions as being sort of holding the society back from it, what it might otherwise have accomplished. Whereas Sophocles would have seen it as the essential anchor that keeps the, the ship of state from floating away entirely. And the, the plague thing, you know, of course, obviously the plague was a longstanding um, literary device uh, to, to indicate um, the God's displeasure. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that real life plagues, as we've learned in the past year, 
real life plagues really do arise in part from a failure to take precautions. Mm. Now, they would not have thought of it that way. And Sophocles, I don't think, would have really thought of it that way for the most part. They're probably they probably had a loose idea that, you know, you, you don't drink out of the out of the, the, the dirty water or something like that. But it's very rudimentary by our standards, obviously. So when you and I look at the play and we look at the use of the plague device as, in the plot, we see something very different. We see it as a failure to prepare, a failure of, of foresight, which kind of collides with Sophocles's characterization of Oedipus as a character who does take precautions, is conscientious as a leader and so forth. But I don't think that's necessarily a contradiction in how we read the play. I think that Sophocles would, would say that indeed, Oedipus has failed to take precautions. It's just that he didn't realize it because he was so busy trying to take precautions. You know? <laughs> uh, that's just the paradox, the horrible paradox that Oedipus is in is he's tried his best to prevent bad things from happening, whether it be a sin or whatever. And and <clears throat> the, the fates have just decreed otherwise. Apollo has just decreed. Other. Now, there has been a tradition historically. There's been sort of this dispute in in scholarship in interpreting Oedipus of people who are really bothered by the idea that Oedipus is just sort of a puppet on a string and who have tried to argue a, around that. There's a, a, a famous classicist named Dodds who wrote a, a, an essay on this called On Misreading the Oedipus Rex, where he tried to argue that the gods predict the future, but they don't control it. They're more like the weatherman who says mm. it's going to rain on Sunday, who's not really causing it to rain on Sunday. But uh, and and I, I have I'll have something to say about this in in the objective standard soon. Uh, I, that view seems pretty misguided. When you look at the text, there really is no way of of arguing that Oedipus is anything other than controlled by the dictate of the god Apollo, who is punishing his father, and it just so happens that Oedipus is is suffers an injustice as a result. And and this idea that there's, that there's something inconsistent in that with religion, I think, is also anachronistic. The the Greeks, at least, this is very different from our Judeo-Christian perspective of our society. The Greeks had no compunction about saying that the gods committed injustice. Mm -hmm. In um, in the Prometheus Bound, for instance, the very last line of the Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus is Prometheus saying, I have been treated unjustly by Zeus. So the Greeks had no had no compunction about saying the gods sometimes, you know. They well, that's one of the things that I think that, that made them great to some degree is that you can't, if you look at other religions, you can't right. even, you can't draw Muhammad in his, without being, you'll get executed. And this, this is true of Christianity at certain periods. And what that does is that essentially blocks off the ability to think about gods yep. at all and their relevance to our, and the Greeks. And you, you mentioned Edith Hamilton, you know, she said that they were the first ones to really create all the gods in their own image with their own foibles and things that were very human like, which gives you an ability to kind of put them into a relationship between you, which rather than demoting you as a human, as a creature on this planet, it elevates you to say that, you know, we come from, uh, you know, Hercules comes from Zeus and I'm a descendant of Hercules or I'm a descendant of this person or of this God or of that. And if, and, if and, any of your, you know, if any of these of your listeners have not read Hamilton's The Greek Way, you absolutely must. Yeah, that's it's wonderful. It's a marvelous book. I mean, there's, you can quibble about some of the details about her interpretations of Greek culture and whatnot. And that stuff, that argument has been going on for centuries. But Hamilton is, first of all, she's such a, a fine writer, very yeah. elegant writing. And her perspective on the Greeks is just very marvelous just marvelous and you're right she says for instance the greeks 
unlike other religions, the Greek gods do not create the universe. The universe exists prior to the gods. There's chaos yeah. first, and then the gods come about, and they have genealogies, and they basically they act like you know a, 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 an occupying force in some ways, right? They're <laughs> yeah. like they're like this alien tribe that kind of controls us, and we have to do what they want. But they are not real. They're not in this for our good by any means. Yeah. And so I think one thing we can maybe close out with that I think is important, I like to try to talk about is um, the role, how this play, how art plays a role in in our lives and why this is important. And you kind of touched on some things um, in just uh, just a few moments ago with when, when you were talking about how Sophocles had these views of religion and he would land on the side of um, the oracles that we need the oracles. This is when I was talking about. Um, you know, can we question the oracles? What are their relevance to today? But to some degree, you know, he had his opinion. It's in the text. Part of our job is to interpret the text and then to say yay or nay in a sense, right? And to, but to really contemplate the text. That's how I see the role of literature as art form or really any art form. But it's that, you know, it's not about agreeing with Sophocles, Right? I think that's one of the mistakes people make, especially when reading older texts, is that you have to agree with them or something. Like that's the feeling you get. And no, you're not going to agree with most, you know, most of these texts in their fundamental conclusions. But one, that doesn't mean they don't have truth in them, right? Like the the challenges of leadership, like you were talking about being a good person, um, trying to take action. And yeah, Sophocles has this view that that's going to lead to your inevitable downfall, that all these humanistic things, if we don't rely on religion, it's going to lead to our downfall. That's his, I think that's his essential, you know, final conclusion. That's, that's what we can look at and be like, well, I don't agree with that, but I can see where the logic of where he's coming from. And that gives me material to understand that concept. And really, you know, the last thing is understanding the philosophical discussion of fate and free will it's really easy, um, you know, you mentioned like getting lost in your head and anybody who's ever read philosophy, which I've only read a little bit, I'm, I'm not a philosopher by any stretch, but it's really easy to get lost in your head. I mean, I don't know how many determinism talks I've had with intellectual, you know, philosophers or people interested in fate, free will and determinism. And it's just, you know, stringing along of concepts and ideas that you drag from different people when it's best encapsulated in great works of literature, Oedipus is a good one to talk about. You know, should he take Jocasta's advice? Should he keep pushing? You know, if he stops pushing, will the fate come about still if he stopped doing it? But then would he be Oedipus and would he be the leader? Like then all the, the plague is going to wipe everybody out if he doesn't do that. Right. And then in a sense, he does kill his wife and or his, his uh, you know, he sleeps with his mother and kills his father. And anyway. like that, that never changed, you know, so on and so forth. You can contemplate it. And, you know, I just think that so the Greeks really understood that as a role of life, which is why this was a religious event, you know, when they put on a play with right. 14 to 15,000 people watching it in a whole day. Like it was a, a and it was, a, it was your duty in a sense as a citizen you know, especially if you were going to vote, like you, you had to be a thinker if you were, if you had the right to vote and you had to be able to contemplate these things. And I think we don't, I don't think of it as that's our duty as American citizens and really, but it's our duty as humans to ourselves to live our best lives, to take the time to read these works of art and understand them to the, and, and contemplate them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, literature, whatever the literature, if it's good quality, serves as often as a sort of a, a thought experiment of what would you do in these kind of circumstances and why and what do you think of the characters and how they do them. And that's sort of that second step you were talking about. Our first step is, is it a well done work of art just on its own terms? Is, does it accomplish what what it is, was intended to accomplish? And then you say, and what do I think of it? You know, I I, I could very well read it and say this is a ma- masterpiece work of literature, but I can't stand it. In fact, there are a number of works that I feel that way yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, because because the evaluation of it as a work of art is kind of separate from what we how we evaluate it in terms of of moral and philosophical values. So, and as you said about criticizing or um, uh, questioning the the role of relationship between the gods and the city and so forth, we also see that in other works of Sophocles, like the Antigone, mm-hmm. about what what is the re- the relationship between the the requirements of the political state of the law. On one hand, and what are and and our duties to obey morality or the will of the gods on the other, and you know, it, Sophocles in that play takes a much more you might say rebellious tone. And in mm-hmm. fact, my own this is my own little interpretation. I don't know whether any scholar agrees with me, but I I think the Antigone is actually Sophocles criticizing the people of Athens, the chorus hmm. in that play that stands in for the people of of the city. I think Sophocles is kind of implicitly criticizing the audience by having them be the chorus, which is a, a, a really interesting device to use. So when you approach the play with that in mind, I think it teaches you a different lesson than if you approach it from a different direction. So I, I do think that in the end, I do agree that Sophocles is a, a moderately religious conservative uh, in, in that sense. But he is he's got a, a real um, undercurrent, you might say, of, of of political rebelliousness about him that makes him a really interesting writer. Yes, and and so even if you're not a literature person or interested in literature, go read Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King. Uh, we'll put a link to the 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 version that both of us I think recommend by and Robert it's really Fages. short. A lot of people it's don't know how, shorter, how realize yeah. how short these Greek. The introduction are. is can, just as long, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and you longer. can read all three of them in 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 a day or two. Yeah, and I, I you know I th- I think it's um sixty two pages for the Antigone or something like that. It's like right, and and it's not you know thick text the whole time. So I agree. I I think it's important that people understand it's not that long. Um, and, you know, just so everybody knows, I do something called, again, go to troubadourmag.com backslash literary canon club. If you want to join us, we're going from the Iliad to Gatsby. We're reading all of it. You don't have to be with us the entire time. You could just join us for session one or two or whatever you want to go through. But check that out. Sign up. It's free to sign up. And we can talk about all the resources and the ways that we help you read through this canon because it is a valuable insight. And now, uh, Tim, you have a review coming up in the magazine, The Objective Standard. And I think the the um, URL is simply, obje- is it theobjectivestandard.com? Yes. Or is it, ob- okay, so it's theobjectivestandard.com. So go to that website. And um, you have a lot of articles with them. But it, when is it, when is this new, it's a review of a new uh, translation, right? Why don't you tell yeah, us? Yeah, I've been that? writing a monthly book reviews for them, and the the Mar- my March review is on a new translation of the Oedipus Rex by a um, University of Virginia classicist named Kovacs. 
uh, and I try to to look at it a little bit and see what see what it says um, in its introduction and its analysis of some of these philosophical questions that we've been talking about, and also compare it to some of the other translations that we've seen. Because, like we said at the very beginning of this podcast, you know, liter- a more literal translation versus a more poetic translation, you know, they each have their their upsides and downsides. And Kovacs is trying a verse translation, so he's translating mm. it into, uh, uh, well, not all iambic pentameter, but into an English verse form to try and convey some of that elevated quality that is in the in the original Greek. Like, like you, I don't know ancient Greek. I, I actually took three semesters of ancient Greek in college, which was hell on earth because it's a <laughs> damn hard language, but yeah. it's, uh, you know, but it, it just gave me enough to, to be a, a, a difficulty to my friends and others. But, um, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, this is a new translation that's just come out and comparing it to, to Fagel's and the other translators. My yeah. favorite still is Fagel. By the way, are you are you you said you're reading the Iliad? Are you doing the, the Fagel's translation of the Iliad? No, we're doing Evie Ryu, actually. I don't um, think I'm familiar with that one. Yeah, he's the one um that he he wrote or that translation is essentially what launched Penguin classic books back in the forties. Oh. And it reached millions of people back then. It was it's a prose translation. It was recommended um, in a lecture, uh, and it was recommended a lecture to by um, Dr. Leonard Peikoff. It was his, it's what he recommends, and for people joining the Literary Canon Club, a lot of them are not literate, you know, necessarily literary people, and um, you know, or at least not the, in terms of the background. So I wanted to start them off with something like this because I think it's a very, um, it, it it it's it's kind of like this, you know, the Fagel's translation in terms of prose for that um for for the Iliad but it's it's very descriptive i think it it keeps a lot of the um essence of the language alive but translated into the metaphors and the ways that's that we, one of the and you know people kind of look down sometimes on prose translations but they're very good for that reason because yeah. they can convey the full beauty of the original um, uh content without feeling bound to english language prose or or ling- english english language prosody that would make it difficult for them to to express those ideas so that's not a bad idea at all yeah and, and i'll just say that there's you do have to be careful with translations i there was one i was looking at because beowulf is one we're going to read in the future of course and there's a new translation or come out not too long ago and it started off like, bro, this is, and I was like, wait a second. And it literally starts off with like, and they're trying to make it like this modern, and I'm like, come on. Part I know of just what, the one you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and I was like, okay, like, I understand what you're trying to accomplish. I get that. But part of the reason, like these stories are powerful, but there is something innate in the language and the elevating aspect where it's not colloquial. Right. This language is not is explicitly not colloquial. It's supposed to separate you to some right. degree to to enter the world of these. And, you know, the 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 Iliad that I'm reading and we're also going to do I think we're going to do I think it's Fagel's Aeneid. Um, the, I think I think he did Aeneid. I yeah. could be wrong. But yeah, so I have a list of the translations we're going through. But anyway, you know, they, they, if you don't have that elevation, especially in these older works where that's what the authors were trying to go for is there these well-told stories. They put them, you know, that are well-known stories. They put them into um, beautiful verse. And I think it is ancient Greek. If you just listen to a recording of it, uh, of the beginning of the Iliad in ancient Greek, it is, it, you can hear it. It's very beautiful. It's rhythmic. It's got this rocking nature. And um, you can't get that in the English. 
but you can, like you said, elevate and, and you, you can have this, um, you, you could just have better prose that captures the essence of the, that, that, what that, that meaning or the meaning behind the, that verse that we can't capture in, in English. It was just and too it's different. It's a real shame that, that there's, you know, there's been in the news lately, this, uh, you know, canceling the classic disrupt and, texts. Uh, yeah. And it's such a, it's such a shame because we're talking about the fundamental literature of, of Western culture that has survived and, and interested people so long precisely because they speak to people across cultural boundaries. That's yes. precisely why they have, have prevailed in history and to then neglect them out of this preconception that they can't possibly speak to me because I have a different race or sexual identity or whatever it might be is such a shame. And it really deprives people of the of an opportunity to join with other great minds throughout history that have also read these works and to appreciate it the same way they do. That connects you with people past generations that have also sat down and read the Iliad or read the Oedipus Rex and, uh, you know, you really have a sort of uh, cross-generation republic of letters, you might say, mm. which is really re <laughs> rewarding, refreshing feeling. And it's a shame that people are denied that. So it's really good that you're encouraging people to read these works like this. Well, the Disrupt Text movement is why I finally launched the Literary Canon Club. It's something I've wanted to do. Um, and, but again, you know, it's it was just like, how can I make this work? But I think now there's, you know, I'm trying to make the literary canon club essentially a movement, like an anti disrupt text type movement, yeah. because just so people understand the disrupt text movement is not just a couple of random people saying, I don't like these texts. Let's stop reading them. These are teachers who are successfully from K through 12 and college successfully removing these texts, you know, not just Iliad and the Odyssey, although they have, you know, like they'll, they'll send out tweets. Oh, I just removed the Odyssey from our curriculum at school. Yay. And then they're, they're applauded for removing the Odyssey. Like that's right. their achievement. It's like, wait a second. That, that's so, so weird. You are proud of the fact that people are not going to be reading this text, which has shaped whether you hate or if you hate Western civilization, you should definitely understand what it's about first. And it reminds me of an old, this. Like, so there was amazing. an old Dadaist sculpture in the 20s, I think it was, which consisted of a machine that when you flip the switch, a little hand came out of the machine and turned the switch off. The whole point <laughs> of the machine, the only thing the machine did was turn itself off. Okay. And there, there's something so <laughs> deeply nihilistic about that. Oh, That's what yeah. I think of these teachers yeah. and, and, and professors who are like, oh, I, you know, we shouldn't teach <laughs> the great works of, of literature and history. It's, it's a real shame. Well, Harold Bloom called this the, the, um, the, the literary critic. I don't know if you, how familiar if you are, he called it the school of resentment. And he yeah. talked about this in the nineties. And of course this goes back really to the beginning of modernism, I think. And then especially postmodernism, but I definitely think the school of resentment, like the writers who write within this, who agree with this, are essentially saying that, you know, they don't want to be compared to Dante and Shakespeare. And I've written, right. I write fiction. I get it, by the way. I do understand that feeling. Like, I'm never going to live up to Hawthorne as my, I, I love yeah. Hawthorne. I'm not going to live up to Hawthorne, even though, like, so many of my stories are directly inspired by him. They're not yeah. even in the same ballpark. Or, or, like, Melville is another one that I really like. Um and I'm never going to write on that level, I don't think. But I always, uh, the, one of the great things about the canon 
is that it's always the measurement. It's always the North Star that you're striving for. Modern writers, I think, do not want that. They want to cut that off and say, okay, so this is the canon now. This is our great works now. Forget what happened for 5,000 years or you know, 3,000 years before this. Let's start with 1960. That's when it all starts. That's when the universe starts. And you know, and makes that it like might that, be, yeah. <laughs> maybe that would be okay if they didn't produce such boring crap. Whereas, <laughs> well, that's why they you should know, you, produce boring crap, the though. Iliad and the Odyssey and Oedipus Rex. I mean, it's got incest. It's got yeah, right. people plucking their eyes out. It's yeah. got sword fights and i mean this is exciting literature this is not boring yeah. you know people made out of marble kind of stuff and i think it it's, does suffer from that reputation people think about classicism and the classics as being uh, somehow pompous but when you actually get into it i mean these are war stories these are stories with romance and like the scene in the iliad where where hector scares his child when he puts That's on the honest. helmet so he has to take That's the true. helmet yeah. off I mean, it's so such a beautiful and moving passage and and people who don't know this literature, they're de- they're deprived of it. It's a real shame. Yeah, I agree. And that's that's the movement. So Troubadour Talks is about that as well. It's trying to get people engaged with the people from all work, walks of life. So, um, you know, I don't want it to be just for this, quote unquote, literary elite, which I think gives it that that kind of sense that you're talking about where it seems hoity toity. It seems yeah. removed and I'm always trying to bring it back to our lives. So I'll let you have, um, you know, the last word, any last words on Oedipus or art or anything like that, you know, before we, we sign off. Oh, that's a, always a dangerous invitation to give to a lawyer. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. you know, how, much, <laughs> how much time do I have your honor? No, I uh, thank you very much for having me on. And yeah. again, I just encourage everybody to, to get into the classics and see how much they can enrich your life and your appreciation, not just, by the way, this is another interesting point is that it's not just the works themselves, but how much else you can appreciate Mm -hmm. by appreciating this, because of course these works have inspired other works. And to understand those, you have to understand where they come from. A good example of this is the Antigone. Sophocles writes the Antigone in, you know, what was it? 300 BC or whatever it was. Well, after world war II, the French playwright Jean Ennui wrote his own version of Antigone. That's sort of a reflection on the original in terms of 20th century totalitarianism. And to really appreciate that the point he's getting at, you of course have to be familiar with the original. Well, with it, so much of our art and literature comes from the classics that people really should get to know it just in order to appreciate that, you know? Great message. All right. Well, thank you so much um, for thank joining you. me. Yeah. And you're welcome back anytime for the Oristaya, by the way, if you want to come on. Oh, for that'd that be one. a lot of fun. Yeah. I'd love that. All right. Thank you, everybody.